Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 136. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Another great morning at Starship Sofa headquarters. The sun is out and it is a glorious day. Give a little heads up what's coming today's show. We have a little fact article by David J. Williams. David Williams wrote the trilogy Autumn Rain, which the final book is coming out at the end of this month. And David just got in touch with us because he sent along the first book and I loved the first book. And now he's up to book three, which is the kind of conclusion of this trilogy. And I just thought it'd be nice to get David's little, just little introduction to the whole collection of books and just to introduce you to David. So we've got that little article coming up. We have a little article by D on the Transcriber Project. It's, uh, oh, it's good. He actually tells you the number of pages as well, which is actually news to me. So that's looking good. It's all coming on there. Do listen out for that. Main fiction tonight comes from Nicola Griffith with It Takes Two. Now, this is up for Best Novelette in this year's Hugo Awards, and I'm very pleased to get this story. We have our monthly film talk by our good friend Rod Barnett, and Observation Deck Cheryl Morgan has an interview with Juliet McKenna. So a fun show, I hope you will agree. Just before we get into the main show, a little bit of news. Sofa Notes is back. Yes, the Sofa Notes show is back. It's not going to be as regular as once a week, but my intention is, because there's still some great bits of news kicking around there in the science fiction world, and it's my intention to kind of, when I see something nice come up about with news or, you know, the nice guests on, I will put out a show. So the Sofa Notes show is back. We There is one, a new show. If you haven't subscribed, come over to the website. Just look for the Sofa Notes. Go on there. It's got a separate feed, so you need to kind of, Go to iTunes, type in Sofa Notes if you want, or Starship Sofa. You'll see it there. Subscribe there. Cheryl Morgan and 
Jonathan Strong, we all talk about the Nebula Award winners. Next week's guest is the one I've just been dying to get on for a long, long time. A gentleman that has been through Helen back of late. Do look out for that. So please do subscribe to The Sofa Notes. And just to whet your appetite, I will kindly please the outro to The Sofa Notes. say goodbye to this week's intrepid crew join us next time as we probe saturn's ring and delve into uranus for a fresh batch of sophonauts there what about that <laughs> with an ending like that you've got to come over and subscribe the sophonauts.com just come to the front of the starship sofa and you'll see a link on the top of the page so first off is David J. Williams. Hi, I'm David J. Williams, the author of the Autumn Rain trilogy, which began with the mirrored heavens and the burning skies and concludes on May 25th with the machinery of light. And I have to say, it's a pretty strange feeling for me wrapping it all up. In, in talking with Tony, I thought that might be an interesting perspective to relate here, namely what it's like to walk away from one's creation, from what one's created. So... Looking back on it, I finished the third book about a year ago, though the process of my editor took some time beyond that. But I remember the, the the weird feeling I had as I was reaching the last page, the last of almost a thousand pages across the trilogy, and themselves the successors to the proverbial million words before that. I was on the train from a book two event in New York back to Washington, D.C., where I live, and I just kind of got to the end and it was a long while obviously before anyone else would i mean from a reader's perspective books in some ways are like icebergs I mean, this is larger shadow work beneath the surface you only see part of it i mean people have only known about the autumn rain trilogy since its publication the first book two years back but i've been living with it for much much longer since september of 2000 actually when the first ideas started forcing their way into my head and i began to realize i was going to have to start writing them down if i wanted to remain sane and perhaps that's the definition of a writer in a nutshell but for the first few years after that i knew i had something but i didn't know what it was and this is the first novel i'd ever written and i had no real idea how to go about it initially as norman mailer once noted first time out you're an amateur by definition so it was a crazy kind of intensity bereft of any precision it was like uh, walking around the woods or running around the woods at night with a flashlight or something and something's there but god knows if you're ever going to find it and even know it if you see it but slowly the characters took shape in my head these these, these people their, their voices were growing louder and their points of view got clearer and i kept writing i kept learning how to write um trying to somehow do them justice i was sitting at my desk at the firm I was working at down K Street, downtown D.C., trying to look normal, trying to act like a model corporate citizen, right? But I was having all these visions all the same, hijacked space planes careening through the upper atmosphere and isolated garden domes in the wilderness of the lunar south pole. I mean, I felt times I was riding whitewater trying to keep up with it all. Now, I was thinking about these characters night and day. I thought about them for years as they 
gradually changed and morphed and took shape and were born, really. I mean, they, they seemed in some ways perhaps more real than the real people in my life. And, of course, that gets one straight to the heart of the real occupational hazard of writing. But also, I think, uh, lays bare the magic of it. Uh, I can remember biking around D.C. late at night, uh, cycling through Rock Creek Park and looking at the moon and envisioning the stories I was telling going on up there, trying to somehow weave all of it together into this larger tapestry of secrets and conspiracies and intrigue. I still have my notes from the old brainstorming sessions back in 2001, 2002, uh, those, the, those real-time cognitive meanderings, as it were. I can print them out. I can stack them alongside all three books, um, and it's surreal to me see how the one evolved into the other where i was going down blind alleys or going in circles but also where i was sensing the right way forward um often just by pure intuition and it's it's particularly significant to me that bantam has been publishing the books the last week of may um each year uh, as it was uh almost three years ago today at the nebula awards in new york city uh, the nebula weekend when my agent told me there was an offer for the whole trilogy on the table and for me the feeling was as much liberation as it was um, jubilation that now i could write books two and three knowing that they would uh, ultimately see the light of day and that my characters would ultimately break forth into the light I, I i've read how the french writer balzac inquired on his deathbed as to the health of characters in his books uh and i i, I guess i know where he's coming from i i, I also though know my characters did what they were meant to do uh, they 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 weren't just meant to stay inside my head and i feel very fortunate to have been able to share them with you so machinery of light hits bookstores on may 25th and you can learn more about the Autumn Rain trilogy and the world behind it at www.autumnrain2110.com. Thanks very much. David, thank you so much. Please, I'll put a link on the site. Go over and have a look, have a look at David's website. It's an amazing website there. David, thank you so much for that. And good luck with the whole trilogy. Next up, we have our good friend, D. In Transcriber Hell, D, sir. This is D. Kniff reporting in from the publishing deck of the Starship Sofa. The main hollow printer is down at the moment, so while the repair droids and the scudders are fixing things up, I've got a few spare moments to talk to you about Project Transcribe. This is a fairly ambitious project for us to undertake, transcribing 11 of the Starship's past shows without the aid of a Geordie to cling on dictionary would be folly under the helm of anyone but Tony. Tony has managed to coerce a great bunch of folks from the Starship community to spend hours and hours listening and re-listening to some of the great shows from the past. No mean feat. One listen to Tony and Kieran spouting profound is usually enough for anybody. So a tip of my hat for their time and sanity goes to Will Reese, Craig Webster, Doug Hill, Phil Ackerman, Steve Bickle, Robin Bradshaw, Paresh Solanke, Gil Tarn, Gail Posey and to all the others who had to drop out due to family or work concerns. All the hard work of listening and typing is done now, the finished files are in, and the cover has been completed. It's just a matter of layout, proofing, and uploading. This final stretch is quite time-consuming, and while everybody did a great job of transcribing, there's still a lot of work to do to get all the shows to read uniformly. Gil and the Fool has volunteered his services again to help out with this final proof. So it's only a matter of weeks before this brick of a book, which comes in at well over 300 pages, is ready for your reading pleasure. Another fantastic addition to your Starship library. 
As an aside, Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 is moving along perfectly. All the stories are in, all the artwork has been commissioned, and some outstanding pieces have made their way back to me already. There really is a stellar lineup of artists involved now, and I really must thank them all from the bottom of my heart for the time and effort they've put in. Right, back to my Type 2 Phantomatic machine. There you go, it's... <laughs> I really do get excited, it's all coming along. The book, I told you last week, I'm going to name the book now. The book is called Starship Sofas, The Captain's Logs. <laughs> Trust us, it is. I've seen the cover as well, and that's, ex- you know what I mean, hats off to D. I got an email off a listener, Cliff Allen, who actually suggested with these, you know, there's a lot of new members, or new listeners coming over the show, uh, who don't even know that Starship Sofa, how it existed, you know, in the oodles of time gone by, suggested or asked if we could, you know, if I could play one of these old shows, just to, in like, context with this kind of transcribed project coming out. So I think maybe a week before the actual book comes out, I'll stick one of those old shows on, you know, tack it on the end of a normal show, and let anyone who hasn't listened to that style of Starship Sofa, do you know what I mean, <laughs> who wants their insanity splattered all over the world, I will put one of those shows on. <laughs> So, main fiction. Today's main fiction comes from Nicola Griffith, who is a native of Yorkshire, England, where she earned beer money teaching women self-defence, front of band and arm wrestling in bars, before discovering writing and moving to the US. Her immigration case was a fight and ended up making new law. The State Department declared it to be in, in the national interest for her to live and work in this country. This apparently didn't thrill the more conservative pawnbrokers and she ended up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal where her case was used as an example of the country's declining moral standards. That's amazing. In 1993, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which slowed her down a bit, and she concentrated on writing. Her novels are Ammonites, 1993, Slow River, 1995, The Blue Place, 1998, Stay, 2002, and Always, 2007. She is the co-editor of Bending the Landscape, series of original short fiction, fantasy, science fiction, horror and queer protagonists. Her short fiction and essays have appeared in an assortment of academic texts and variety of journals, including Nature, New Scientist and The Huffington Post. Her awards include Tip T Nebula and World Fantasy Award. Her current work in progress are a short story collection, an essay collection and the first of a triptych of novels about Hilden Whitby. Nicola lives with a partner, the writer Kelly Estrigs, in Seattle where she runs Sterling Editing, helps develop websites and takes enormous delight in everything. And like I say, this story is up for this year's Hugo for Best Novelette. It is narrated by Christy Yant. Christy is... A software tester, SF and fantasy writer, assistant editor for the new Lightspeed magazine and PodTurn for Tor.com's Geek Guide to the Galaxy podcast. Her fiction is forthcoming in the anthology The Way of the Wizard. She lives on the central coast of California with her two amazing daughters and an assortment of four-legged nuisances. Her website is inkhaven.net. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present... It Takes Two by Nicola Griffith 
It began, as these things often do, at a bar. A long, dark piece of mahogany along one wall of Seattle's Queen City Grill, polished by age and more than a few chins. The music was winding down. Richard and Cody, whose real name was Candace, though no one she had met since high school knew it, lived on different coasts. But tonight was the third time this year they had been drinking together. Cody was staring at the shadows gathering in the corners of the bar and trying not to think about her impersonal hotel room. She thought instead about the fact that in the last six months she had seen Richard more often than some of her friends in San Francisco, and that she would probably see him yet again in a few weeks when their respective companies bid on the Atlanta contract. She said, You ever wonder what it would be like to have, you know, a normal-type job where you get up on Monday and drive to work and do the same thing Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday every week except when you take a vacation? You forgot Friday. What? They had started on mojitos, escalated through James Bonds, and were now on a tequila shooter with draft chaser glide path. I said, you forgot Friday. Monday, Tuesday. Right, Cody said, right. Too many fucking details. But did you ever wonder about a normal life? An actual life. In one city, with actual friends. Richard was silent long enough for Cody to lever herself around on the bar stool and look at him. He was playing with his empty glass. I just took a job, he said. A no-travel job. Ah, shit. They had met just after the first dot-com crash at a graduate conference on synergies of biomechanics and expert decision-making software architecture or some such crap, which was wild because he started out in cognitive psychology and she in applied mathematics. But computers were the alien glue that made all kinds of odd limbs stick together and work in ways never intended by nature. Like Frankenstein's monster, he had said when she mentioned it, and she had bought him a drink, because he got it. They ran into each other at a similar conference two months later, then again at some industry junket not long after they'd both joined social media startups. The pattern repeated itself until, by the time they were both pitching venture capitalists at trade shows, they managed to get past the required cool, the distancing irony, and began to email each other beforehand to arrange dinners, drinks, tickets to the game. They were young, good-looking, and very, very smart. Even better, they had absolutely no romantic interest in each other. Now when they met, it was while traveling as representatives of their credit-starved companies to make increasingly desperate pitches to industry-leading Goliaths on why they needed the nimble expertise of Hungry Davids. Cody hadn't told Richard that lately her pitches had been more about why the Goliaths might find it cost-effective to absorb the getting-desperate David she worked for, along with all its innovative, motivated, bootstrapping employees whose stock options and 401ks were now worthless. But going back to the groves of academe was really admitting failure. She sighed. Where? Chapel Hill. And it's not... Well, okay, it is sort of an academic job, but not really. Uh-huh. No, really. It's with a new company, a joint venture between Wishelnet and the University of North C. Just let me finish. Richard could get very didactic when he'd been drinking. Think Google Labs or Xerox Park, but wackier. Lots of money to play with, lots of smart grad students to do what I tell them, lots of blue-sky research, not just irritating vice presidents saying I've got six months to get the software on the market, even if it is garbage. I hear you on that. Except that Vince, Cody's COO, had told her that if she landed the Atlanta contract, she would be made a VP herself. It's cool stuff, Cody. All those things we've talked about in the last six, seven years... The cognitive patterning and behavior mod, the modulated resonance imaging software, the intuitive learning algorithms? Yeah, yeah. They want me to work on that. They want me to define new areas of interest. Very cool stuff. 
Cody just shook her head. Cool. Cool didn't remember to feed the fish when you're out of town again. Starts next month, he said. Cody felt very tired. You won't be in Atlanta. Nope. Atlanta. In August. On my own. Jesus. On your own? What about all those pretty girls in skimpy summer clothes? The muscles in Cody's eyebrows felt tight. She rubbed them. It's Boone I'm not looking forward to. Boone and his sleazy strip club games. He's the customer. Oh, your sympathy's killing me. He shrugged. I thought that lap-dancing hooker thing was your wet dream. Her head ached. Now he was going to bring up Dallas. That's what you told us in... Now, where the hell was that? Dallas. Might as well get it over with. You were really into it. Are you blushing? No. Three years ago, she had been 28, with $4 million in stock options and the belief that coding cowboy colleagues were her friends. Ha! And now probably half the geeks in the South had heard about her most intimate fantasy, including Boone. She swallowed the last of her tequila. Ugly stuff once it got tepid. She picked up her jacket. I'm out of here, unless you have any handy hints about landing that contract without playing Boone's slimeball games. Didn't think so. She pushed her shot glass away and stood. That Atlanta meeting's when? Eight, nine weeks? About that. She dropped two twenties on the bar. I maybe could help. With Boone? Right. But Richard's usually cherubic face was quite stern. He fished his phone from his pocket and put it on the bar. He said, Just trust me for a minute, and tapped the memo icon. The icon winked red. Whatever happens, I promise no one will ever hear what goes on this recording except you. Cody slung on her jacket. Cue ominous music. It's more an, um, an ethics thing. Jesus, Richard, you're such a drama queen. But she caught the bartender's eye, pointed to their glasses, and sat. I did my Atlanta research, too, he said. Like you, I'm pretty sure what will happen after you've made your presentations to Boone. The golden key, she said, nodding. Common knowledge. The sun rises, the government taxes. Boone listens to bids and takes everyone to the golden key. But what I need to know from you is whether or not, to win this contract, you can authorize out-of-pocket expenses in the high five figures. She snorted. Five figures against a possible eight? What do you think? He pointed at the phone. Fine. Yes. I can approve that kind of expense. He smiled, a very unrichard-like sliding of muscle and bone, like a python disarticulating its jaw to swallow a pig. Cody nearly stood up, but the moment passed. You'll also have to authorize me to access your medical records, he said. So here they were in Marietta, home of the kind of Georgians who wouldn't fuck a stranger in the woods only because they didn't know who his people were. Seven men and one woman stepping from Boone's white concrete and green glass tower into an August sun hot enough to make the blacktop bubble. Boone's shades flashed as he turned to face the group. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And Jill, with a nod at Cody, who nodded back and tried not to squint. Squinting made her look like a moron, not good when all around you were wearing sleek East Coast summer business clothes and gilded with southern tans. At least the guy from Portland had forgotten his shades, too. They moved in a small herd across the soft, sticky parking lot. The guy from Boston would have to throw away his fawn loafers. Boone said to the guy from Austin, Dave, you take these three. I know you know where we're going. Sure do, Dave said, and the seven boys shared that we're all men of the world, yes, indeedy laugh. Cody missed Richard. And she was still pissed at the way he'd dropped the news on her only last week. Why hadn't he told her earlier about not coming to Atlanta? Why hadn't he told her in Seattle? And a university job? What was up with that?
Loser. But she wished he was here. Boone's car was a flashy Mercedes hybrid in silver. He opened the passenger door with a, Yeah, I know men and women are equal, but I was born in the South, so what can you do? Smile, to which Cody responded with a perfect, ironic lift of both eyebrows. Hey, couldn't have managed that in shades. The New York guy and Boston loafers got in the back. The others were climbing into Dave's dark green rental SUV. A full-sized SUV. Very uncool. He'd lose points for that. She jammed her seatbelt home with a satisfying click. As they drove to the club, she let the two in the back jostle for conversational space with Boone. She stared out the window. The meeting had gone very well. It was clear that she and Dave and the guy from Denver were the only ones representing companies with the chops for this contract, and she was pretty sure she had the edge over the Denver people when it came to program rollout. Between her and Dave, then. If only they weren't going to the Golden Key. God! The thought of all those men watching her watch those women and think they knew what she was thinking made her scalp prickle with sweat. In the flow of conditioned air, her face turned cold. Two days before she left for Atlanta, she'd emailed Vince to explain that it wasn't her who would be uncomfortable at the strip club, but the men, and that he should at least consider giving Boone a call and setting her presentation up for either the day before or the day after the others. She'd got a reply half an hour later, shortened to the point, "'You're going, kid. End of story.' She'd taken a deep breath and walked over to his office. He was on the phone, pacing up and down, but he waved her in before she could knock. He covered the receiver with one hand, gotta take this, won't be long, and went back to pacing, shouting, Damn it, Rick, I want it done! When we had that meeting last week, you assured me. Yeah, no problem, you said. No fucking problem. So just do it. Just find a way. He slammed the phone down, shook his head, turned his attention to her. Cody, what can I do for you? If it's about this Atlanta thing, I don't want to hear it. Vince. Boone's not stupid. He takes people to that titty club because he likes to watch how they behave under pressure. You're the best we've got, you know that. Just be yourself and you won't fuck up. Give him good presentation and don't act like a Girl Scout when the nipples start to show. Can you handle that? I just resent- Jesus Christ, Cody, it's not like you've never seen bare-naked ladies before. You want to be a VP? Tell me now, yes or no. Cody took a breath. Yes. Glad to hear it. Now get out of here. The Golden Key was another world, cool and scented with the fruity overtones of beer, Loud, with enough bass to make the walls of her abdomen vibrate. Dark at the edges, though lushly lit at the central stage with its three chrome poles and laser strobes. Only one woman was dancing. It was just after six, but the place was already half full. Somewhere, someone was smoking expensive cigars. Cody wondered who the club had paid off to make that possible. Boone ordered staff to put two tables together right by the stage, near the center pole. The guy from New York sat on Boone's left, Dave on his right. Cody took a place at the end out of Boone's peripheral vision. She wouldn't say or do anything that wasn't detached and ironic. She would be seamless. A new dancer. Shoulder-length red hair that fell over her face as she writhed around the right-hand pole. She wore a skirt the size of a belt and six-inch heels of translucent plastic embedded with suggestive pink flowers. Without the pole, she probably couldn't even stand. Did interesting things to her butt, though, Cody thought, then patted surreptitiously at her upper lip. Dry, thank God. Score one for air conditioning. New York poked her arm. He jerked his thumb at Boone, who leaned forward and shouted, What do you want to drink? Does it matter? He grinned. No grape juice playing at champagne here. Place takes its liquor seriously. Peachy. Margarita, with salt. If it was sour enough, she wouldn't want to gulp it. 
A dancer hung upside down on the pole and undid her bra. Her breasts were a marvel of modern art, almost architectural. My God, she said, it's the Hagia Sophia. What? New York shouted. She's called Sophia? No, Cody shouted back. Her breasts... Never mind. Fakes, New York said, nodding. The drinks came, delivered by a blonde woman wearing nothing but a purple velvet G-string and a smile. She called Boone Darlin, clearly he was a regular, and Cody Sugar. Cody managed to lift her eyes from the weirdness of unpierced nipples long enough to find a dollar bill and drop it on the drinks tray. Two of the guys were threading their tips under the G-string, a five and a ten. The blonde dropped Cody a wink as she walked away. New York caught it and leered. Cody tried her margarita, very sour. She gulped anyway. The music changed to a throbbing remix of mom music, the Pointer Sisters' slow hand. The bass line was insistent, pushing on her belly like a warm hand. She licked her lips and applied herself to her drink. Another dancer with soft black curls took the left-hand pole and the redhead moved to center stage on her hands and knees in front of their table, rotating her ass in slow motion, looking at them over her shoulder, slitting her eyes at them like a cat. Boone, Dave, all the guys had bills in their hands. Oh, Mama, I've got what you need. The redhead backed towards them in slow motion, arching her spine now in apparent ecstasy, but not so far gone as to ignore the largest bill at the table. Boone's twenty. She let him tease her with it, stroking up the inside of her thigh and circling a nipple before she held out the waistband of her pseudo-skirt for the twenty. They probably didn't notice that she plucked them of their bills in order. Boone's twenty, Dave's ten, the two fives. Then she was moving to her right, to a crowd of hipster suits who had obviously been there longer than was good for them. Two of them were holding out fifties. The dancer pretended to fuck the fifty being held out at pelvis level. She had incredible muscle control. Next to Cody, New York swallowed hard and fumbled for his wallet. But it was too late. The hipster was grinning hard as the redhead touched his cheek, tilted her head, said something. He stood in his friend's hooted encouragement as he and the redhead disappeared through a heavily frosted glass door in the back. Oh, man. Dave's face was more red than tan now. He pulled a fifty from his wallet, snapped it, folded it lengthways, and held it out over the stage to the remaining dancer. Yo, curly head, come and get some. Yeah, said New York in a high voice. Portland and Boston seemed to be engaged in a drinking game. Boone caught Cody's eye and smiled slightly. She shrugged and spread her hand as if to say, hey, it's their money to waste, and he smiled again, this time with a touch of skepticism. Ah, shit. Sugar, the waitress with the velvet G-string, standing close and bending down so that her nipples brushed Cody's hair, then dabbed her cheek. Cody looked at her faded blue eyes and found a ten-dollar bill. She smiled and slipped it into the G-string at the woman's hip and crooked a finger to make her bend close again. "'I'd take it as a personal favor if you brought me another one of these wonderful margaritas,' she said in the woman's ear, "'without the tequila.' "'Whatever you say, but I'll still have to charge you for the liquor.' "'Of course you do. Just make sure it looks good.' Cody jerked her head back at the rest of the table. "'You let me take care of everything, sugar. I'm going to make you the meanest-looking margarita in Dixie.' They'll be amazed, purely amazed, at your stamina. It'll be our little secret. She fondled Cody's arm and shoulder, let the back of her hand brush the side of Cody's breast. My name is Mimi. If you need anything, later. She gave Cody a molten look and headed for the bar. The skin on her rotating cheeks looked unnaturally smooth, like porcelain. Cosmetics, Cody decided. Curly-head had spotted Dave's fifty and was now on her back in front of their table. Cody imagined her as a glitched wigglebot responding to insane commands, 
Clench, release, arch, whip back and forth. Whoever had designed her had done a great job on those muscles, each distinct, plump with strength, soft to the touch. Shame they hadn't had much imagination with the facial expressions or managed to put any spark in the eyes. Breasts swaying near her face announced the arrival of her kickless drink. She slipped a ten from her wallet and reached for Mimi's G-string. Mimi stepped back half a pace, put her tray down, and squeezed her breasts together with her hands. Would you like to put it here instead, sugar? Cody blinked. You could slide it in real slow, then maybe we could get better acquainted. But like the Wigglebot, her eyes stayed blank. You're too hot for me, Mimi. Cody snapped the bill into her G-string and tried not to feel Mimi's flash of hatred. She sipped her drink and took a discreet peek in her wallet. This was costing the company a fortune. Boone watched Dave in New York with a detached expression. Then he turned her way with a speculative look. An invitation to talk? She stood, and turned to look at the stage just as a long-haired woman in cowboy boots strode to the center pole. For Cookie, it was all routine so far, ankle holding up better than she thought it might. The boots helped. She couldn't remember when she'd written that note to herself, cowboys and Indians, but it was going to be inspired. She flexed and bent and pouted and pointed her breasts on automatic pilot. Should she get her ankle x-rayed? Nah, it was only a sprain. Two ibuprofen and some ice would fix it. Decent crowd for a Tuesday night. Some high spenders behind the pillar there, but Ginger had taken them for four lap dances already. Well, hey, there were always more men worth more money than cents. She glanced into the wings. Danny had her hat. He nodded. She moved automatically, counted under her breath, and just as the first haunting whistle of Morricone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly soundtrack echoed from the speakers, she held out her hand, caught the hat, and swept it onto her head. Oh, baby, perfect today, perfect. She smiled and strutted down stage. A woman at the front table was standing. Cookie saw the flash of a very expensive watch, and for no particular reason was flooded with conviction that tonight was going to go very well indeed. Cookie, baby, she told herself, tonight you're going to get rich. And with that catch of the hat, that strut, just like that, Cody forgot about Boone and his contract, forgot about being seamless, forgot everything. The dancer was fine, lean, and soft, strong as a deer. The name Cookie was picked out in rhinestones on her hat, and she wore a tiny fringed buckskin halter and something that looked like a breech clout, flaps of suede that hung from the waist to cover front and back, but not the sides, and wicked spurs on the boots. She looked right at Cody and smiled, and her eyes were not blank. Part of Cody knew that Boone had seen her stand, and was now watching her watch this dancer, and that she should stop, or sit, or keep walking to Boone's end of the table, but the other part— the part that liked to drink shots in biker bars, to code all night with acid girls pounding from the speakers and the company's fortunes riding on her deadline, the part that had loaded up her pickup and left Florida to drive all the way to the West Coast on her own when she was just 19, that had once hung by her knees from a ninth-floor balcony just because she could. That part cared about nothing but this woman with the long brown hair. The hair was Indian straight and ended just one inch above the hem of the breech clout, and the way she moved made Cody understand that the hat and spurs were trophies, taken from a dead man. When the dancer trailed her hands across her body, Cody knew they held knives. When the male voices began their rhythmic chanting, she could see this woman riding hard over the plain, vaulting from her pony, stripping naked as she walked. The music shifted, but again it was drums— and now Cookie swayed like a maiden by a pool, pulling the straps of her halter off her shoulders, enough to expose half her breast, but not all, and she felt them thoughtfully and began to smear them with war paint. 
When she had painted all she could see, she pushed the buckskin down further so that each breast rested like a satsuma on its soft shelf. Then she turned her back on the audience, twisted her hair over one shoulder and examined the reflection of her ass in the water. She turned a little, this way and that, lifting the back flap, one corner, then another, dropping it, thinking, stroking each cheek experimentally, trying to decide how to decorate it. Then she smoothed the buckskin with both hands so it pulled tight and studied that effect. She frowned. She traced the outline of her G-string with her index finger. She smiled. She stuck her butt out, twitched it a couple of times, hooked both thumbs in the waistband of her G-string and whipped it off. The breech clout stayed in place. She was still wearing the halter under her breasts. And the little dyke liked that, Cookie could tell. She smiled smooth as cream, danced closer, saw the stain creeping up the woman's cheeks the way her lips parted and her hands opened. Professionally manicured hands, clothes of beautifully cut linen, shoes handmade. The men in the room faded to irritation. This was the prize. One of the men at the table reached out and slipped a twenty between the rawhide tie of her breech clout and her hip, but Cookie barely took her eyes from the woman. Twenty here, fifty there was small change compared to this— "'For you,' she mouthed, and turned slightly and tightened down into a mushroom of skin-sheathed muscle, took off her hat, and reached back and pulled the flap of her breech-clout out of the way. She was aware of some shouting, the tall guy with the red face and the fifty, but she kept her eyes fixed on the woman. And then the music changed, and Ginger was back from her lap dance, and she saw Christy was hand-in-hand hand with a glazed-looking mark, about to leave for the back room, and it was time for her to put some of her clothes back on and work the floor. Five minutes.' she mouthed to the woman. Cookie, Cody thought as the dancer flicked the suede flap back in place, stood gracefully and put her hat back on. Cookie. She watched as Cookie left the stage and took all the heat and light with her. She would come back, wouldn't she? Five minutes, she had said. Cunt, Dave shouted again. My money's not good enough for you? Goddamn, no, you get off me. He pushed Boone's hand from his arm, then realized what he'd done. Shit, that's... It's just, you know how it is, man, but fifty bucks. Hell, Dave, maybe she knew it was counterfeit, Boone said jovially. Dave forced a laugh, thrust the bill in his pocket. Yeah, or maybe she just doesn't understand size matters. Boone laughed, but everyone at the table heard the dismissive note. Maybe it's time to call it a night, folks. But Cody wasn't listening, because Cookie was standing before her. No hat, buckskins, and g-string back in place. Okay, guys, looks like we lost Cody. Boone laughed, nothing like the laugh he'd given Dave. Hey, girl, you make sure you get a cab home, here. Mention my name to the doorman. Come on, guys, we're out of here. Cody, is that your name? said Cookie, and took her hand. Cody nodded dumbly. I'm Cookie. It's so good to find another woman here. Another nod. How are you? Cody wanted to say, but that made no sense. Would you like to dance with me? Just you and me in private? Yes. I love dancing for women. It gets me going. Turns me on. I understand what women want, Cody. Would you like me to show you? Yes, said Cody, and was mildly amazed when her legs worked well enough to follow Cookie to the frosted glass door. Midnight in her hotel room. Cody sat on the bed, naked, too wired to lie down. Streetlights slanted through the unclosed drapes, turning the room sodium yellow. The air conditioning roared, but her skin burned. Cookie. Cookie's lips, Cookie's hips, Cookie's cheek and chin and belly. 
her thighs and ass and breasts. Oh, her breasts, their soft weight on Cody's palms. She lifted her hands, turned her palms up, examined them. They didn't look any different. She unsnapped her watch, rubbed her wrist absently. Cookie. Stop it. What the fuck was the matter with her? She'd gone to a strip club and had sex for money. It was a first, okay, so some confusion was to be expected, but it was sordid, not romantic. She'd been played by an expert and taken for hundreds of dollars. Oh, God, and Boone. She had made a fucking fool of herself. So why did she feel so happy? Cody, you're so beautiful, she'd said. Oh, yes, yes, don't stop, Cody. Give it to me. Give me all of it. And Cody had. And Cookie had... Cookie had been perfect. She'd understood everything, anticipated everything. What to say, what to do, when to cajole and goad, when to smile and be submissive, when to encourage, when to resist. Like a mind reader. And she had felt something. Cody knew it. She had. You couldn't fake pupil dilation. You couldn't fake that flush. You couldn't fake that sheen of sweat and luxuriant slipperiness. Could you? Christ. She was going mad. She rubbed her eyebrows. Cookie was a pro, and none of it was real. She got up. The woolen carpet made her bare feet itch. That was real. Her clothes were flung across the back of the chair by the desk. They reeked of cigar smoke. No great loss. She'd no idea why she'd chosen to wear those loose pants anyway. Hadn't worn them for about a year. Hadn't worn that stupid watch for about as long, come to think of it. Cookie hated the smell of cigars. She'd said so when she was unbuttoning. Stop it. Stop it now. She carried her pants to the bed and pulled the receipts from her pockets. Eight of them. She'd paid for eight lap dances and the size of the tips. Jesus! That was two months' rent. What had she been thinking? We have to pay for the room, Cookie said, but I'll pay you half back. It's just that I can't wait. Oh, please, Cody, I want you again. God damn it! Her ferocity scared her momentarily, and she's still listening. No stirrings or mutterings from either room next door. Give me your hotel phone number, Cookie had said. I'll call you tomorrow. This has never happened before. This is real. And if it was, she could reschedule her flight. She'd explain it to Vince somehow. Christ, that huge contract gone in a flash of lust. Vince would kill her. But, oh, she'd had nearly three hours of the best sex she'd ever had. It had gone exactly the way she'd imagined it in her fantasies. I know just what you want, she said, and proved it. But Cody had known, too. That was the thing. She had known when the hoarse breath and clutching hands meant it was Cookie's turn, meant that Cookie now wanted to be touched, wanted to break every single personal and club rule and be fucked over the back of the chair just for pleasure. Cody stirred the receipts. She couldn't make it make sense. She had paid for sex. That was not romance. But she had felt Cookie's vaginal muscles tighten, felt that quiver in her perineum, the clutch and spasm of orgasm. It wasn't faked. It hadn't been faked the second time, either. Cody shivered. The air conditioning was finally beginning to bite. She rubbed her cold feet. Cookie's feet were long and shapely, each toe painted with clear nail polish. She'd twisted her ankle, she'd said. Cody had held the ankle, kissed it, stroked it. Cookie's smile was beautiful. 
How did you sprain it? Cody had asked, and Cookie had told her about falling five feet from the indoor climbing wall. And they had talked about climbing and rafting, and Cody had told her of the time when she was seven, and had seen Cirque du Soleil, and wanted to be one of the trapeze artists, and that led to talk of abdominal muscles, which led to more sex. She padded into the bathroom, still without bothering with the light. When she lifted her toothbrush to her mouth, the scent of her fingers tightened her muscles involuntarily. She dropped the toothbrush, leaned over the sink, and wept. A blue, blue Atlanta morning. Cody hadn't slept. She didn't want breakfast. Her plane wasn't until four that afternoon. She'd lost the contract, lost a night's sleep, lost her mind and her self-respect, and flushed two months' rent down the toilet. She would never see Cookie again, and she couldn't understand why she cared. The phone rang. Cookie, she thought, and hated herself for it. Hello? Your cell phone's off, but I called Vince back in Frisco, and he told me you were at the Westin. Boone. She shut her eyes. Plane's not till four, am I right? Cody, you there? Yes, I'm here. If you're not too tuckered out, maybe you wouldn't mind dropping by my office. We'll give you lunch. Lunch? Yep, you know, food? Don't they do lunch on the West Coast? Yes, I mean, why? He chuckled. Because we've got a few details to hammer out on this contract. So should we say, oh, 11.30? That's, yes, fine, good, she said at random, and put the phone down. She stared at her bag. Clothes. She'd need to change her clothes. Was he really giving her the contract? The phone rang again. Hello? She said doubtfully, expecting anyone from God to the devil to reply. Hey, Cody, it's me. Richard? Yeah, listen, how did it go? I don't... Things are... She took a deep breath. I got the contract. Hey, that's great. But how did last night go? Christ, Richard, I can't gossip now. I don't have the time. I'm on my way to Boone's. Iron out a few details. She had to pull it together. I'll call you in a week or two, okay? No, wait, Cody, just don't do anything you... Later, okay? She dropped the phone in its cradle. How did he know to call the Weston? What did he care about her night? She rubbed her forehead again. Food might help with the contract. The headache, she meant. And she grinned. The contract. She'd goddamn well won the contract. She was going to get a huge bonus. She was going to be a vice president. She was going to be late. In the bathroom, she picked up the toothbrush, rinsed off the smeared paste, and resolutely refused to think about last night. Cookie dialed the hotel. This is Cody. Leave a message or reach me on my cell phone, followed by a string of numbers beginning with 216. San Francisco, that's right. She told Cookie that last night, San Francisco with its fog and hills and great espresso on Sunday mornings. That might be okay. Anything would beat this Atlanta heat. Boone didn't want to talk details so much as to laugh and drink coffee and teach Cody how to eat a po'boy sandwich. After all, if they were going to be working together, they should get to know each other, was he right? And there was no mention of strip clubs or lap dances until the end when he signed the letter of intent, handing it to her, and said, I like the way you handle yourself. Now take that Austin fella, Dave. No breeding. Can't hold his liquor, can't keep his temper, and calls a woman names in public. But you, no boasting, no big words, you just sit quiet, then seize the opportunity. He gave her a sly smile. You do that in business, and we'll make ourselves some money. And somehow, with his clap on the back, the letter in her laptop case, and the sun on her face while she waited for the car for her trip to the airport, she started to forget her confusion. 
She'd had great sex. She'd built the foundations of a profitable working relationship. She was 31 and about to be a vice president, and she didn't even have a hangover. The car came and she climbed into the cool, green-tinted interior. She let the outside world glide by for ten minutes before she got out the letter of intent. She read it twice. Beautifully phrased. Strong signature. Wonderful row of zeros before the decimal point. If everything stayed on track, this one contract would keep their heads above water until they could develop a few more income streams. And she had done it. No one else. Damn, she was good. Someone should buy her a great dinner to celebrate. She got out her phone, turned it on. The signal meter wavered as the car crossed from cell to cell. Who should she call? No one in their right mind would want to have dinner with Vince. Richard would only want all the details, and she didn't want to talk about those details yet. He was in the Carolinas anyway. Asshole. The signal suddenly cleared, and her phone bleeped. One message. Hey, this is Cookie. I know you don't go until the afternoon. If you... I know this is weird, but last night was... Shit, look, maybe you won't believe me, but I can't stop thinking about you. I want to see you, okay? I'll, I'll be in the park, the one you told me about. Piedmont. On one of the benches by the lake. I'm going there now, and I'll wait. I hope you come. I'll bring donuts. Do you like donuts? I, I'll be waiting. Please. Oh, you're different. Oh, you're so special. Oh, give it to me, baby. Just pay another thousand dollars, and I'll love you forever. Sure. But Cookie's voice sounded so soft. So uncertain, as though she really meant it. But of course it would. That was her living, playing pretend. Using people. Cody's face prickled. Be honest, she told herself. Who really used who here? Who got the big contract? Who got to have exactly what she wanted? Great sex with no complications, and on the expense account, no less. It was too confusing. She was too tired. She was leaving. It was all too late anyhow, she thought, as the car moved smoothly onto the interstate. A woman sitting on her own on a bench, maybe getting hot, maybe getting thirsty, wanting to use... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The bathroom. Afraid to get up and go pee because she might miss the one she was waiting for. 
Maybe the hot, sweet scent of the doughnuts reminded her she was hungry, but she wouldn't eat them because she wanted to present them in their round dozen perfection to her sweetie. See her smile of delight. She would pick at the paint peeling on the wooden bench and look up every time someone like Cody walked past. Every time she'd be disappointed. This one magical thing had happened in her life, something very like a miracle, but as the hot, fat sun sinks lower, she understands that this miracle, this dream is going to die because the person she's resting all her hopes on is worried she might look like a fool. Or doesn't want to admit that she had used a woman for sex, then thrown her away. Cody blinked, looked at her watch. She leaned forward, cleared her throat. The driver looked at her in his mirror. Ma'am? Where is Piedmont Park? Northeast of downtown. Do we pass it on the way to the airport? No, ma'am. She was crazy. But all that waited for her at home was a tank full of fish. Take me there. Without the hat and boots, wearing jeans and sandals and the kind of tank top Cody herself might have picked, Cookie looked young. So did her body language. Her hair was in a braid. She was flipping it from shoulder to shoulder, twisting on the bench to look to one side, behind her, the other side. When she saw Cody, her face opened in a big smile that was naked and utterly vulnerable. "'How old are you?' Cody blurted. The face closed. Twenty-six. How old are you?' Thirty-one. Cody didn't sit down. They stared at each other. "'Dirt on my face?' "'No.' Sorry, it looks... you look different. You expect me to dress like that on my day off, too? No, no. But part of her had. So, you get a lot of days off? A short laugh. Can't afford it. No expense accounts for me. No insurance, no 401k, no paid vacation. Cody flushed. Earning 2000 bucks a night isn't exactly a hard luck story. Was I worth it? Her smell filled Cody's mouth. Yes, she wanted to shout. Yes, a hundred times over. But that made no sense, so she just stood there. You paid 2200 The house takes 60% off the top. Out of my 880 Danny takes another 20%. And no, he's a bouncer, not a pimp. And I've never done that before last night. And no, I don't expect you to believe me. Then there's costumes, hair, waxing, makeup. She leaned back and draped both arms along the back of the bench. You tell me, would fucking a complete stranger for three hours be worth $500? Her mouth stretched in a hard smile, but her eyes glistened. She put one ankle up on the other knee. Does your ankle still hurt? It just popped out. Cookie turned away, blinked a couple of times. Cody found herself kneeling before the bench. Cookie? Cookie, don't cry. Susanna, she said, still turned away. What? Susanna. It's my real name, Susanna Herrera. She turned to Cody and her face was fierce. I am Susanna Herrera. I'm a dancer. I'm not a whore. And I want you to know what you've done to me. What I've... I dance. I tease. I hint. It makes you feel good. You give me money, which makes me feel good. Sometimes I give a lap dance, but always by the rules. Hands on the armrest, clothes on, a little bump and grind because I need the extra tips. I dance. You pay. It's my job. But this, this isn't a job. I don't know what it is. It's crazy. I let you... Her cheeks darkened. And I would do it again. For no money. For nothing. It's crazy. I feel... It's like... 
I don't even know how to say it. I want to talk to you. Listen to you talk about your business. I want to see your house. I didn't sleep last night. I thought about you. Your smile, your hands. How strong it made me feel to give you pleasure. How warm I felt when you wrapped your arms around me. And I'm afraid. Me too, Cody said, and she was, very, because she was beginning to get an idea what was wrong with them, and it felt like a very bad joke. You're not afraid. Susanna folded her arms, turned her face again. I am. Cook. Susanna, do you suppose... Shit. I feel ridiculous even saying this. Look at me. Please. Thank you. Do you suppose this is what... She couldn't say it. She didn't believe it. After a very long pause, Susanna said, Dancers don't fall in love with the marks. That cut. Marks don't fall in love with whores. I'm not a... Neither am I. They stared at each other. Cody's phone rang. She thumbed it off without looking. My full name is Candice Marcinko. I have to fly back to San Francisco this afternoon, but I could come back to Atlanta at the end of the week. We could, you know, talk, go to the movies, walk in the park. Jesus, had she left any stereotype unturned? She tried again. I want to meet your... your cat. I don't have a cat. Or your dog, she said. Stop babbling. But she couldn't. I want to learn how long you've lived in Atlanta and what kind of food you like and whether you think the Braves will win tonight and how you feel when you sleep in my arms. She felt like an idiot. Susanna looked at her for a while, then picked up the box at her side. Do you like Krispy Kreme? When Cody turned her phone on again at the airport, there was a message from Richard. Call me. It's important. But she had to run for her plane. In the air, she leaned her head against the window and listened to the drone of the engines. Susanna, sitting on the bench while the sun went down, thinking, Love. Love is for rich people. A cream Labrador runs by, head turned to watch its owner, running alongside. Its tongue lolls, happy and pink. Dogs love. Dogs are owned. She tears the last three donuts to pieces and throws them to the ducks. On Thursday, Vince and the executive team toasted her with champagne. She took the opportunity to ask for Friday and two days next week off. Vince couldn't say no without looking chintzy, so he told her VPs didn't have to ask permission. VP. She grinned hard, and for a minute she felt almost normal. VP. Top dog. Friday morning, she had just got out of the shower when the doorbell rang. She was so surprised she barely remembered to pull on a robe before she opened the door. Well, that's a sight for sore eyes. Richard! Not that I don't appreciate the gesture, but could you please tighten that belt, at least until we've had coffee? Here you go. Quad grande, two percent. She went to get dressed. When she emerged, drying her hair with a towel, he was sitting comfortably on the couch, ankle crossed at the knee, just like Susanna in the park. I envy you that dyke rub-and-go convenience. She draped the towel around her neck, sat, and sipped a latte. To paraphrase you, it's not that I don't appreciate the coffee, but... Why the fuck are you here? He put his phone on the table next to her latte. Remember this? It's your phone? He took a thumb drive from his laptop case and gave it, then her, a significant look. Richard, I've had a real weird few days, and I'm on a plane in four hours. Maybe. Maybe she was crazy. Maybe she should cancel. Anyhow, could you please just get to the point? 
Drink your coffee. You're going to need it. And tell me what happened on Tuesday night. He held up his hand. Just tell me, because my guess is you had a hell of a night with a lovely young thing called Cookie. She didn't say anything for a long, long time. Susanna, she said finally. Ah, you got that far? Susanna Herrera, age 24, 26, 24, trust me. Mother Antonia Herrera, father unknown, Dunwoody Community College, degree in business administration, oh, the look on your face, and one previous arrest for possession of a controlled substance. Healthy as an ox, not currently taking any medication except contraceptive pills. The pill? What's the matter? Nothing. Go on. No known allergies to pharmaceuticals, though a surprising tolerance to certain compounds, for example, sodium thiopental and terpazine hydrochloride. Cody seized on something that made sense. Wait, I know that drug. It's RU486 for the mind. That's the one. Oh, Jesus, Richard, you didn't give her that. You didn't make her forget what happened. Not what happened Tuesday. Cody, confused, said nothing. He plugged the thumb drive into his laptop and turned the screen so she could see the sound file icons. It will all make sense when you've listened to these. But I don't have time. I have a plane. You'll want to cancel that if it's to Atlanta. Just listen. Then I'll answer questions. He tapped play. Cue ominous music. She jumped at the sound of her own voice. What? Shh. More an um, ethics thing. Jesus, Richard, you're such a drama queen. Pause. Clink. I've done my research, too. Like you, I'm pretty sure what will happen after you've made your presentations to Boone. The Golden Key. But what I need to know from you is whether or not you can authorize out-of-pocket expenses in the high five figures to win this contract. He touched pause. Ring any bells? No. Cody's esophagus had clamped shut. She could hardly swallow her own spit, never mind the latte. But the cardboard was warm and smooth in her hand, comforting, and behind Richard her fish swam serenely back and forth. Terpazine's a good drug. We managed to calculate your dosage beautifully. Susanna's was a bit more of a challenge. Incredible metabolism. You said you didn't give her not in the last couple of weeks. But you've had it six times, and she seven. Now keep listening. Six times? The exploration of memory and its retrieval. So exciting. A perfect dovetail with the work I've been doing on how people form attachments. It's all about familiarity. You let someone in deep enough, or enough times, then your brain actually rewires to recognize that person as friend or family. Pause. There are ways to make it easier for someone to let you in. Clink of bottle on glass. I've told you about those studies that show it's as simple as having person A anticipate person B's needs and fulfill them. So don't tell me again. She sounded so sure of herself, bored even. A woman who had never thought to use the word love. Jumpstart the familiarization process. For example, person A works in a bookshop and is lonely, and when she's lonely, chocolate makes her feel better. And one day, person B arrives mid-afternoon with some chocolate, says, Hey, you look sort of miserable. When I'm miserable, chocolate makes me feel better. Would you like one? And A eats the chocolate and thinks, Wow, this B person is very thoughtful and empathic and must be just like me, and therefore gets slotted immediately into an almost friend category. It's easy to set something like that up. You just have to know enough about person A. No enough. Cody pushed the laptop from her. I don't believe this. No? Cody didn't say anything. 
You sat in that Seattle bar, and you listened, and then you signed a temporary waiver. He placed a piece of paper on the table by her hand. It was her signature at the bottom, a little sloppy, but hers. Then you took some terpazine and forgot all about it. I wouldn't forget something like this. He held up his hand, reached with his other, and nudged the sound file slider to the right. Take the pill. All right, all right. Pause. Tinkle of ice cubes. Jesus, that tastes vile. Next time we'll put it in a capsule. Just be grateful it's not vasopressin. It would make you gag. I speak from experience. He tapped the file to silence. It really does. Anyhow, a week after Seattle, I came here and you signed a more robust set of papers. He handed her a thick, bound document. Believe me, they're bomb-proof. Wait. She dropped the document on her lap without looking. You came here? To my apartment? I did. I played the recording you've just heard, showed you the initial waiver. Gave you that. He nodded at her lap. You signed. I gave you the sodium thiopental. We had our first session. You took another terpazine. I don't remember. He shrugged. It happened. He tapped the paper in her lap. There's a signed waiver for every session. How many did you say? Six. Four here, twice in North Carolina. But I don't remember. The fish in her tank swam back and forth, back and forth. She closed her eyes, opened them. The fish were still there. Richard was still there. She could still remember the weight of Susanna's breasts in her hands. You'd better listen to the rest and read everything over. He tapped play. Okay, think about what it would be like if you knew enough about someone and then you met them. You'd know things about her and she'd know things about you, but all you'd know is that you recognize and trust this person and you feel connected. Now imagine what might happen if you add sex to the equation. Good sex, I hope. The best. There are hundreds of studies that show how powerful sex bonding can be, especially for women. If a woman has an orgasm in the presence of another person, her hormonal output for the next few days is sensitized to her lover. Every time they walk in the room, her system floods with chemical messengers like oxytocin saying, friend, friend. This is even with people you know consciously aren't good for you. You put that together with someone compatible, who fits, whether they really fit or just seem to fit, and it's a chemical bond with the potential to be human superglue. That's what love is a bond that's renewed every few days until the brain is utterly rewired. So I wanted to know what would happen if you put together two sexually compatible people who magically knew exactly, exactly what the other wanted in bed, but had no memory of how they'd acquired that knowledge. It took Cody a moment to pause the sound. Love, she said. Love? What the fuck have you done to me? You did it to yourself. Keep listening. And she did. After she had listened for an hour, she accepted the sheaf of transcripts Richard handed her from his case. She looked at the clock. Still thinking about that plane? She didn't know what she was thinking. Is it refundable, he said, the flight? She nodded. Give me the ticket. I'll cancel for you. You can always rebook for tomorrow, but you need to read. She watched, paralyzed, as Richard picked up the phone and dialed. He turned to her while he was on hold, mouthed, read, and turned away again. So she began to read, only vaguely aware of Richard arguing his way up the airline hierarchy. After the first hundred pages of Subject C and Subject S, he brought her fresh coffee. She paused at one section, appalled. What? I can't believe I told you that. He peered over her shoulder. Oh, that's a juicy one. Stop blushing. I've heard it all before. Several times now. Sodium thiopental will make you say anything. Besides, you don't remember telling me, so why bother being embarrassed?
She watched her fish. It didn't matter. Didn't matter. She picked up the paper again and plowed on. May as well get it over with. Somewhere around page 300, he went into the kitchen to make lunch. She didn't remember eating it, but when she set aside the final page at seven o'clock that evening, she saw that the plate by her elbow was empty and heard the end of Richard's order to the Chinese takeout place on the corner. It was clearly something he'd done before. From her phone, in her apartment. And she didn't remember. She wished there was a way to feed him terpazine so he would forget all those things she'd never said to another soul before. She tried to organize her thoughts. He had asked for her permission to use her in an experiment. It would mean she would feel comfortable at the club in Atlanta, that she might even have a good couple of hours, and it would further his work while being paid for to some extent by her expense account. He had traveled to the Golden Key and picked Susanna as the most likely dancer to fit her fantasies, and he knew a little about her preferences from that stupid, stupid night in Dallas, and made the same pitch to her. Only Susanna got paid. Twice, Cody thought. I paid her, too. And so Richard had flown to Cody's apartment in San Francisco and given her sodium thiopental, and she had talked a blue streak about her sexual fantasies, every nuance and variation and degree of pleasure. In North Carolina, she had talked about her fantasies again, even more explicitly, encouraged to imagine in great detail, pretend it was happening, while they had her hooked up to both a functional MRI and other machines. Richard put down the phone. Food in 30 minutes. Cody forced herself to stay focused, to think past her embarrassment. What were the fMRIs for? The fMRIs, blood gas sensors, and, she glanced at the paper, TMS, during the, the fantasy interludes. We built a kind of mind and hormone map of how you'd feel if someone was actually doing those things to you. A sort of super empathy direction finder. And one from Susanna, of course. We played your words to each other, along with transcranial magnetic stimulation to encourage brain plasticity. The rewiring. And, she hunted through the pages for the section labeled Theoretical Underpinnings, you gave me, us, oxytocin? No. We wanted to separate out the variables— you supplied the oxytocin on your own, later, he beamed. That's the beautiful part. It was all your own doing. Your hopes, your hormones, your needs, yours. We made a couple of suggestions to each of you that you might not have come up with on your own, that expensive watch and the loose clothes, Cookie's hat and spurs. But the rest was just you and Cookie. I mean, Susanna. But you two were primed for each other, so if that wasn't the best sex of your life, I'll eat this table. He wrapped the tabletop in satisfaction. All her own doing. You can't publish, she said. Not this, no. He picked up one of the fMRIs and admired it. It's enough for now to know that it works. She waited for the anger to well up, but nothing happened. Is this real? The project? Quite real. Project. She watched him gather all the documents, tap them into a neat pile. Not the project, she said. Not the TMS, not the fMRIs, the terpazine. This... She tapped her chest. Is it real? He tilted his head. Is love real? A lot of people seem to think so. But if you mean, is that what you're feeling, the answer is, I don't know. I don't think a scan could give you that answer. But it could tell us if you've changed. Your data have been remarkably clear. Not like cookies. Susanna's. He held the fMRI image up again, admired it some more, then put it back in the pile. What do you mean? The data. Yours were perfectly consistent. Hers were erratic. Erratic. Her mind seemed to be working in another dimension. It took an age for the thought to form. Like lying? 
she's lied about a lot of things. But she could have been lying to me about how she feels. He shrugged. How can we ever know? She stared at him. The literature, she said, trying to force her slippery brain to remember what she'd just read. It says love's a feedback loop, right? In terms of individual brain plasticity, yes. So it's mutual. I can't love someone if she doesn't love me. If it was love. He gave her a look she couldn't interpret. The data don't support interdependence. He paused, said more gently, We don't know. Pity, she realized. He pities me. She felt the first flex and coil of something so far down she couldn't identify it. What have you done to me? What else have you done to me? To you? For you? You made me feel something for a woman who fucked for money, who had her mind fucked for money. So did you, if you think about it, just at one remove. I didn't. So what, you did it for science? Cody changed direction. Does Susanna know? I'm flying to Atlanta tomorrow. Do you have her sound files with you? Of course. Let me hear them. That would be unethical. Unethical. I think you might be a monster, she said, but without heat. I have a strange way of showing it then, wouldn't you say? For the price of a few embarrassing experimental sessions you won't even remember, I won you a contract, a girlfriend, and a night on the town. She stared at him. You expect me to be grateful. Well, look at this place. Look at it. Bare walls. Fish, for God's sake. Get out. Oh, come on. Out. But tomorrow it will all fall into perspective. I swear to God, if you don't leave now, I'll break your face. She sounded so weirdly calm. Was this shock, or was it just how people in love, or whatever, behaved? She had no idea. And you can put those papers down. They're mine. My private thoughts. Leave them right there on the table. The thumb drive, too. He pulled the drive, laid it on the papers, stowed his laptop, and stood. She held the door open for him. He was halfway through the door when she said, Richard, you can't tell Susanna like this. No? It's too much of a shock. You seem to be coping admirably. At least I already knew you, or thought I did. You'll be a complete stranger to her. You can't. You just can't. It's inhumane. And she's so young. Young? Don't make me laugh. She makes you look like an infant. He walked away. Cookie danced. She didn't want to think about the phone call. Didn't want to think about any of it. Creep. But there was the money. The lights were hot and the air conditioning cold. Her skin pebbled. Yo, darling, let's you and me go to the back room, the suit with the mustache and bad tie said. He was drunk. She knew the type. He'd slip his hands from the chair, try to cop a feel, get pissed off when she called in Danny, refuse to pay. Well now, she said in her special honey voice, let's see if you've got the green, and pushed her breasts together invitingly. He flicked a bill across her breasts. A five won't buy you much, baby. Five will buy you, baby doll, he said, hamming for his table buddies. One of them giggled. Ugly sound in a man, Cookie thought. Five will buy you five times. And how long did it take you to come up with that, honey? The fuck? He looked confused. I said, your brain must be smaller than your dick, which I'd guess is even smaller than your wallet, only I doubt that's possible. And she plucked the bill from his fingers, snapped it under her G-string, and walked away. In the dressing room, she looked at herself in the mirror. Twenty-four was too old for this. Definitely. She had no idea what time it was. She stuck her head out the door. Danny! 
Yes, doll. Time is it. She'd have to get herself a watch some day. A nice expensive watch. Ten after, Danny said. After what? Ten. Three hours earlier on the West Coast. She stacked her night's take, counted it, thought for a minute, peeled off two hundreds in fives and ones. She stuck her head out of the door again. Danny, here, doll. I'm gone. You sick? He ambled up the corridor, stood breathing heavily by the door. Sick of this. Mr. Pergoletti says, you tell Pergoletti to stick it. I'm gone, seriously. She handed him the wad of bills. You take care of these girls now, and have a good life. Got something else lined up? Guess we'll find out. There was one bottle of beer in Cody's fridge. She opened it, poured it carefully into a glass, stared at the beige foam. A glass. She never drank beer from a glass. She poured it down the sink. She had no idea what was real anymore, but she was pretty sure alcohol would only make things worse. She made green tea instead and settled down in the window seat. The sun hung low over the bay. What did Susanna see from her apartment? Was her ankle better? Contraceptive pills. Jesus. And, oh, the smell of her skin. She was losing her mind. She didn't know who she hated more. Richard for making the proposal or herself for accepting it. Or Susanna. Susanna had done it for money. Or maybe... But what about those contraceptive pills? And what if Susanna did feel... whatever it was? Did that make it real? It was all an experiment, all engineered. Fake. But it didn't feel fake. She wanted to cradle Susanna, kiss her ankle better, protect her from the world. The Richards of the world. She picked up the phone, remembered for the tenth time she had neither address nor phone number. She called Information, who told her there was no listing under Susanna Herrera in the Atlanta metro area. She found herself unsurprised, though surprised at how little it mattered. She got the number for the Golden Key instead. A man called Pergoletti answered. Cookie, she's gone. They always go. The music thumped. Cody's insides vibrated in sympathy, remembering. Don't have a number. Hey, you interested in a job? Cody put the phone down carefully, sipped her tea, picked up the phone again, and called Richard. It was open mic night at Coffee to the People. Richard was in the back room on a sofa, as far from the music as possible. Two cups on the table, one still full. You knew I'd call. I did. Did you program that, too? I didn't program anything. I primed you, and only about the sex. He patted the sofa. Sit down before you fall down. She sat, blinked. Give me her phone number. I can't. She gave me a fake. I called her at the club, but she hung up on me. He seemed put out. What does she know? I talked fast. I don't know how much she heard. But I told her she wouldn't get the rest of the money until we'd done follow-up. The singer in the other room sang of love and broken hearts. It was terrible, but it made Cody want to cry anyway. How long does it last? Love? I don't know. I avoid it where possible. What am I going to do? Richard lifted his laptop bag. I planned for this eventuality. He took out a small white cardboard box. He opened it, shook something onto his hand. A gray plastic inhaler. What is it? A vasopressin analog, formulated to block oxytocin receptors in the nucleus accumbens. That is, the antidote. They both looked at it. It works in voles, he said. Female voles. Voles. You said it tasted bad. 
I've used it, just in case. I prefer my sex without complications. And I've had a lot of sex and never once fallen in love. He arched his eyebrows. So, hey, it must work. The elephant whistle hypothesis. Hey, Bob, what's that whistle? Well, Fred, it keeps elephants away. Don't be an asshole, Bob. There aren't any elephants around here. Well, Fred, that's because of my whistle. Cody. He did his best to look sincere. I'm so very sorry. I never thought it would work. Not like this. But I do think the antidote might work. His face went back to normal. He hefted the inhaler. Though before I give it to you, I have a favor to ask. She stared at him. On what planet do I owe you anything? For science, then. A follow-up scan, and then another after you take the antidote. Maybe I won't take it. Give me the number. Love is a form of insanity, you know. The number. In the other room, the bad singing went on and on. Oh, all right. For old time's sake. He extracted a folder from his bag and a piece of paper from the folder. He slid it across the table towards her, put the inhaler on top of it. She nudged the inhaler aside, picked up the paper. Handwritten. Susanna's writing. Love's just biochemical craziness, he said, designed to make us take a leap in the dark to trust complete strangers. It's not rational. Cody said nothing. She screwed us. She screwed you, Cody said. Maybe she fell in love with me. But she took the inhaler. Cody sat in the window seat with the phone and the form Susanna had filled in. Every now and again she punched in a different combination of the numbers Susanna had written and got the cannot-be-completed-as-dialed voice. Every now and again she touched the form with the tip of her middle finger. She could feel the indentation made by Susanna's strong strokes. Strong strokes, strong hands, strong mouth. She didn't think about the gray inhaler in its white box, which she had put in the fridge, to stay viable a long time, just in case. After a while she stopped dialing and simply waited. When her phone lit up at 11.46, she knew who it was, even before she saw the 404 area code on the screen. "'Do you feel it?' Susanna said. "'Yes,' and Cody did. Whatever it was, wherever it came from, it was there, as indelible as ink. She wanted to say, "'I don't know if this is real. I don't know if it's good.' She wanted to ask, "'Have you ever had sex with anyone for money before me, and does it matter?' She wanted to know, have you ever loved anyone before, and how can you know? She wanted to say, will it hurt? Walking through the crowds at the airport, Cody searched for the familiar face, felt her heart thump every time she thought she saw her. Panic or love? She didn't know. She didn't know anything except that her throat ached. Someone jostled her with his bag, and when she looked up, there was the back of that head, that smooth brown hair so familiar after just one night, and all her blood vessels seemed to expand at once, every cell leaped forward. She didn't move. This was it, the last moment. This was where she could just let the crowd carry her past, carry her away, out into the night. Walk away. Go home. Use the inhaler in the fridge. That was the sensible thing. But the Cody who had hung from the ninth-story balcony... The Cody who had risked the Atlanta contract without a second thought. That Cody thought, fuck it, and stepped forward. You couldn't know. You could never know. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Nicola Griffith. Nicola, thank you so much.
And a big thank you to Christy. Christy, you're a star, thank you. Mr. Rod Barnett, film talk, sir. Hello, everybody. For the past few months, I've gotten heavily back into reading comic books. A lot of them. But not a lot of comic books that are coming out right now. Not comics that are being published today. I've been reading comics that were uh, published when I was a kid. In other words, I'm kind of wallowing in nostalgia, reading some stuff from my childhood over again, and finally getting to read those issues that I missed for whatever reason. And I've also been reading a lot of stories from the past 25 or 30 years that I never got the chance to read otherwise. These big trade paper editions of these whole storylines or whole runs of comic book series in both color or black and white are nice and cheap and man, they're they're addictive. I can't stop myself. It's a lot of fun. But I'm kind of obsessive, so when I immersed myself back into comic books and the stories they tell, I also started looking around and finding books about comic books. And so far, the most fascinating one has been this great book by a guy named Brian Cronin called Was Superman a Spy? and Other Comic Book Legends Revealed. Now, this is a neat book. The uh, tagline for it is fascinating and often bizarre true stories behind more than 130 urban legends about comic book culture. This was a lot of fun to read, and I highly recommend it to any comic book fan. You don't just have to be a superhero comic book fan to enjoy it. The stories contained in this book are entertaining all on their own. I thought I knew a lot about comic book characters and their history and what went down with their creation and things of that nature. But boy, this book really sets you right. I mean, uh, how did Captain America's shield go from looking like a a V-shaped thing to the round shield that he's been carrying ever since? Uh, what was the, what was going on with Captain America and those weird stories from the 50s? And why did they write them out of existence in 64 when they brought him into the Avengers? And, And does anybody really know why Steve Ditko left Spider-Man after helping create the character and really kind of writing it for a few years? What's the truth behind those lawsuits between the creators of Superman and the creators of Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Shazam? Oh, there's all kinds of information in this book, and I really do recommend it if you're a fan of these things. Well, Superman a Spy is a neat, neat little book. But that's not the only thing I've discovered in my re-immersion into comic book reading and comic book culture, I have discovered a truly amazing thing. There are a whole new slew of direct-to-DVD animated movies out there that, uh, well, they're exactly the kind of thing I wished they'd made when I was a kid. These things are the real deal. Now, don't get me wrong, I've enjoyed quite a number of the live-action movies that have become a staple of the summer blockbuster season, just like a lot of other people. But man, if you really want to see these characters done right, these movies, these animated films, are gold. Marvel Comics has done a number of them that are actually pretty good. I was really impressed with the two Avengers animated films they did, which really kind of adapted their Ultimates line into a storyline that's a little more kid-friendly than the kind of adult-aimed Ultimates line was. They also did a pretty good job with the Doctor Strange animated film they did, but I have to admit I was really underwhelmed by their Iron Man animated film. It just really fell flat for me, and I think they made a bad choice in making the villain Iron Man faced 
a magic-based villain. That's just not what I appreciate in an Iron Man story. He needs to face off against technologically-based villains, and the magic thing kind of makes it all a little hokey. Doctor Strange is a different matter. But for the really high-quality ones, the really fantastic ones, it's the DC Universe animated films that have just floored me. I mean, there have been a host of them, and almost all of them have been good. They... They did a retelling of the Superman Dies storyline called Superman Doomsday, which was pretty good. I mean, it's not great, but it's pretty good. But the one they produced after that was an adaptation of Darwin Cook's big story called The New Frontier. It's a story set in about 1953, and the timeline goes along to 1960, and it retells the genesis, kind of the origins, of all of the DC Universe characters as if they took place in the 50s when they were originally created in the comic books. And it's fantastic. You've got uh, the Martian Manhunter, one of my personal favorite characters. You've got Superman, Wonder Woman... You've got the Justice Society, you've got Our Man, you've got oh, the Flash. It is so neat. It is a really good story. The graphic novel it's based on was fantastic, and the movie is really good, too. It's one of those rare instances where the animated film is only about 75 minutes long, and you really wish it had been about 15 or 20 minutes longer, so it could have included some more of the detail that was in the graphic story. But, oh... The New Frontier is fantastic, and it was one heck of a beginning for DC to really kick out the jams and do one of these things upright. Well, here recently, I finally caught their Green Lantern story, their animated film called First Flight, and it's good, too. It's a modern-day retelling of Green Lantern's origin, how he was picked by a dying Green Lantern's ring to become part of the Green Lantern Corps, and it's really well done. A, a nice story. It introduces the, the the Green Lantern Corps' main villain as well, as he is still part of the core. Introduces the whole backstory and tells a heck of a romping good story along the way. Quite well done. And then they produced what has got to be one of the sharpest bits of superhero animated film I have ever seen, and one that just almost blew my mind. It's an adaptation of yet another of their long-form storylines that went over many issues. It's called Superman slash Batman Public Enemies, and this story arc is fantastic. It tells the story of how Lex Luthor manages to run a third-party candidacy for the presidency of the United States and get elected, and then, all while he's protesting that he's reformed and that he's not attempting to do some dastardly evil thing, of course, he's attempting to do dastardly evil things. He's helped along the way by the fact that the oncoming trajectory of a huge kryptonite asteroid is hurtling toward Earth with dangerous repercussions for everybody involved. But man, this is one heck of a story and the best thing about it is how it seamlessly tells this story and folds so many dc universe characters into it not just superman and batman there's black lightning and power girl the villains black manta catman brimstone lady shiva mongol captain boomerang bane and the superheroes they just keep coming there's 
Hawkman and a host of other characters telling one heck of a story. I mean, this thing was entertaining. Well animated, good voice work, even a good score. Ah, Superman Batman Public Enemies is just fantastic. It's exactly the kind of storyline they could never do as a live-action film because there's just too much going on and far too many superheroic characters. The budget would be astronomical. DC's done yet another one called Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, which I saw a few weeks ago as well, and it was really good too. But man, you've really got to be a superhero DC Comics geek to get all the references in it. I mean, I think you can enjoy it just as someone coming to it as a as a new fan, but man, there's so much stuff going on with the alternate earth, uh, with a, a good guy, Lex Luthor from an alternate universe coming through. And on his planet, there being bad guy versions of Superman and Batman and wonder woman and everybody else. It's a fantastic story and very well done, but wow, might be one to watch after you a bit more well-versed in the DC universe, but geez, justice league crisis on two earths is really good too. Like I say, these are the exact kind of thing I wish they'd been making when I was a kid. These were the things you dreamed of in your head while you read comics when you were little. Oh, they're so good. And man, every time I sit down to watch one of these things, the, the comic book geek in me just goes berserk. Oh, these are exactly great. These are what we need more of. Oh, yeah, this is good stuff, folks. But I've got to go. I've got another one waiting for me in there to watch and... uh I just can't wait to get to it. So I'll talk to you again later on. Have a good time. Uh, go check some of these out. The Green Lantern one's good. Those uh, Avengers animated films are quite good. But wow, Batman, Superman, Public Enemies. That's the one to really be after. So until next time, have fun at the movies or I guess maybe in front of your television screen with a direct-to-DVD animated superhero film. Bye, guys. <laughs> Rod, thank you so much. Next we have on the observation deck, Cheryl Morgan. Cheryl. This is Cheryl Morgan on the observation deck of Starship Sofa. Today I'm in Oxford in the beautiful surrounds of St Hilda's College where the Right Fantastic uh, Fantasy Writers Group is putting on a small convention. Uh, it should be lovely, of course, but it being May in Britain... It's freezing cold and pouring with rain. Uh, fortunately, we're all inside, and I have with me Juliet McKenna, who's the leading light of Right Fantastic and has been organising this. Juliet, this is your first time in con running. How's it going? Uh, it's going extremely well. Bearing in mind, I would never have had the sheer gall and effrontery to try something like this without the con running experience of uh, Carrie Sparing in Waits and the general support and backing of the rest of the group. Uh, the day has definitely, it is definitely a group enterprise. Cool. And it, it seems to be going reasonably well. You've got a decent crowd of people. Approximately how many people are here? Uh, we have 60. Uh, not including the cast, as it were, panellists and dealers and pros. So, um, yeah, extremely pleased with that. Very pleased indeed. And this is, is a one-day event? Yes. Uh, one-day events seem to be springing up. Uh, I'm a regular at PicoCon in London. There's been alt fiction up in Derby, and last, end of last year it was uh, BristolCon, the first one-day convention. 
And there are definite advantages to a one-day event. So when we realised this May sees the Wright Fantastic's fifth anniversary, which was a bit of a surprise to us all, we sort of thought, well, actually, you know, we should do something special to mark the day. And Oxford's nice and central, and, yeah, why not? So we did. Do you think you'll be doing it again in later years? Uh, people are already asking about next time. Um, so, given the list we are already making of things to remember for next time, which fortunately isn't too long, it isn't too terrifying... Um, I think we could be persuaded. I see you've got dealer's rooms as well. You've got Murky Depths, you've got Newcom Press. Well, again, we, we've got a very good space here. And I think that you need... No, you don't need to. But you may as well offer the fans who've come as wide uh, a choice of things to hear, things to look at, things to buy, things to read, uh, as you can. So... Of course, you've got a ready-made set of panellists because the Right Fantastic is a writer's cooperative. It is a writer's cooperative, um, but also we then looked at the uh, very interesting selection of science fiction and fantasy writers who live within easy striking distance of Oxford, notably Jeff Ryman, Ben Jeeps, uh, Ian Watson, um, Stephen Dears. He has come up from Kent, uh, bless him. But, uh, yes, it's not hard to run a successful event with that quality of contributor. Uh, okay, and uh, I noticed you've got a, an anthology as well. Well, again, it's one of those things where just all the pieces fell into place. We've been going five years. We've talked about doing an anthology oh, well, f- from the first days of the group, but we just always ended up going round and round in circles. Should it have a theme? Should it reflect any of our established worlds and characters? And we could never come to a consensus. And then... Ian Waits joins the group, and he is, of course, uh, uh, one of the uh, leading lights of Newcom Press. And he said, have you ever thought about doing an anthology? And I said, well, yes, and this is the way the conversations have ended up going in completely unproductive circles. And then, well, if we're doing an anniversary event, and I cannot remember the life of me who said, well, anniversaries would actually make a very good theme. And everybody chimed in with, oh, yes, actually, he would, wouldn't it? And all the pieces just fell into place. So there we go. Okay, that's wonderful, and it seems to be going extremely well. We found a nice pub to go and have lunch in, which is always a good thing with a convention. Well, uh, you know, we did do extensive local site surveys um, just to make sure, absolutely. Good, okay. Well, in which case, let's um, enjoy the rest of the day, and we'll look forward to this being an annual event. Ah, well, onwards and upwards. Thank you very much, Juliet. You're very welcome. Cheryl, thank you so much. That is Oral Delights, show 136. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, we are really gearing up now to the Captain's Logs, the Transcribe Project. Do consider, you know what I mean, helping out and treating yourself to this book when it comes out. 300 and odd pages, come on, it's a bargain. <laughs> Actually, I've seen, like I say, D sent over the images or the the kind of PDF for us to to proofread. (laughs) What a nightmare that is. (laughs) Pulling teeth out of a dead horse. But Dee's job is manager of an advertising agency, and this is what he kind of does day in, day out. Do you know what I mean? It's an amazing task what Dee's took on there, and he sent us over these kind of the the PDF proof. And what he's just done with, you know, because I had these ideas, you know, for the transcribe, how they would be laid out in the book. 
I wanted the pictures and I wanted everything, you know, just to get everyone involved and have it in the book t- to display. And the way Dee's kind of put these photographs up of the transcribers and, you know, got it all laid out, it is just looking stunning. Do you know what I mean? It would be a fine asset in anyone's book collection. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.